Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. So, my name is Dean Lane. I'm the Senior Vice President uh, for Cyber Intelligence here at the Institute of World Politics. Um, and I, I'll, I won't get into that, but I will tell you the, the Institute itself has five master degree programs and one doctoral program. Uh, right now, the cyber intelligence is a certificate program, but in the future, we expect that it will become accredited and offered as a degree. Um, this afternoon, Is it working? Hello? Okay, we're okay with that. I know. So, it is my um, honor to introduce Mr. Devins to you. He's got um, 20 years worth of experience in a number of different fields, which makes him extremely valuable uh, because you take the knowledge that he has in intelligence, national security, planning, um, He's also, uh, in some regards, a STEM person, chemical, biological, that kind of thing. Um, so he knows from what he's speaking about. Um, I'm a little worried because he's had training in advanced explosives, and I never know what he's carrying. Um, <laughs> and um, he served as an officer in the U.S. Army, which is, to his detriment, I'm a Navy guy. Okay? Um, but he's worked in both the Ukraine and in Russia, and he speaks Russian fluently, so if there are any Russian spies out there, you make sure you're talking to him. Um, and, and he's going to talk to you today about the Russian worldview. Actually, and, we're talking about the fruits of life. Oh, that was last week. Yeah. Yeah. Don't wake me up. Okay, okay, so this is his subject, but I'm going to turn it over to um, and if you have any questions about the school, just come find me. Okay, good, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming out here. And um, just a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, this is being filmed on YouTube, or it's, been, it's being filmed right now. It's being posted on YouTube and Facebook. So if you don't want to have your opinions viewed by the entire world, uh, you can just say quiet, and you can talk to me afterwards if you have a specific question that you don't want to have on YouTube. Um, so I'm going to start this this one out um, with a uh, really short, uh, really short humorous uh, video clip. And I mentioned to you that it's a humorous video clip because I actually showed this to a British audience, and they believed it was it was absolutely true and serious. So we'll start that just to, to lighten things up, but actually give some context as to what I'll be talking about. is the Onion News Network. Better news, better viewers. Congress today reauthorized funding for Facebook, the massive online surveillance program run by the CIA. According to Department of Homeland Security reports, Facebook has replaced almost every other CIA information gathering program since it was launched in 2004. 
After years of secretly monitoring the public, we were astounded. So many people would willingly publicize where they lived, their religious and political views, an alphabetized list of all their friends' personal email addresses, phone numbers, hundreds of photos of themselves, uh, and even status updates about what they were doing moment to moment. It is truly a dream come true for the CIA. Much of the credit belongs to CIA agent Mark Zuckerberg, who created a Facebook operation for the agency. The decorated agent, codenamed the Overlord, was recently awarded the prestigious Medal of Intelligence Commendation for his work with Facebook program, which he has called, quote, the single most powerful tool for population control ever created. Among the biggest successes in the Facebook program is Operation Farmville, which the CIA credits with pacifying as many as 85 million people after unemployment rates rose dramatically. Other features, such as the suggested friends window, have been instrumental in allowing government agents to infiltrate deeper into the friend networks of suspected dissidents. For some expert analysis now on the story, let's check in with Backstone's first responders. Jason, you have written extensively about the Facebook program. Why is it so effective? Well, one of the key reasons is that the CIA has been so thorough in convincing the nation that constantly sharing information about everything that you're doing is somehow desirable instead of deeply unsettling. Yeah, you know, critics are saying that the national debt being so high, is this really the time to be spending even more money on spy programs? Well, actually, the Facebook program saves the CIA money. It's uh, like the Maps application where you list every place that you've been, whether it's at the state or a country. Or... Oh, right. With the little pin so you can show where you visited. Yeah, yes. like that. that kind of information would have taken the CIA months of going through uh, hotel receipts and plane tickets to figure it all out. The, the manpower that Facebook saves is yeah, huge. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and the calendar feature even lets the CIA know where you're going to be in advance. So that's right, so now if they want to pick you up for questioning, all they have to do is see which events you RSVP'd yes to and then send their agents to be waiting for you. That's right. <laughs> yes, so effective. But guys, with all the focus on the Facebook program, is it taking away from some of the other CIA programs like Twitter initiative? Oh, dude, the funding for that should be cut entirely. Right, 400 billion tweets and not one useful bit of data was ever transmitted. <laughs> now, is this trend of social networks information gathering dangerous? I mean, just last week, the New York Times revealed that Al-Qaeda has designed Foursquare to identify probable locations for bombing. I actually, Brooke, that's been uh, discredited as any kind of real threat. The people that use that site are people that no one would mind seeing bombed anyway. So really, <laughs> the only okay. thing the CIA has to uh, be concerned about is people losing interest in Facebook and moving on to a new social network site, like the Chinese site Wanbi. I love it. Are you guys on Wanbi? Oh my god, it's yeah. so much more fun than Facebook. It is great. I love that. I love that you can earn friend points the more states secrets that you post. You know, I've got a lot of contacts in the State Department. You know, I think I could really wrap them up. Post them up. Oh, I should. Anyway, first responders, thank you so much as always. You know, I'm, of course, a big fan of any social networking site. It allows me to interact with my fans without having to see, hear, or smell them. Well, it's taken months of preparation, but it's finally here. Today marks the first day of Washington's historic summit with... Regular Americans. So, just a little disclaimer here, uh, the views, I hope you all enjoyed that video, by the way. Uh, who's, who's, who's seen the, that video before? Okay. Um, there's, a, there's actually a lot of truth in it, that's why the British audience actually believed it was a true report. Um, so, the views, opinions presented here are strictly my own, Not, they don't reflect the views or opinions of any organizations that I was affiliated with or am affiliated with right now. So. I, I got interested in this subject, so my background was I was a cyber, a little bit about my background, but um, I came out here to Washington, D.C. early 2011. I was a Russian analyst for about four and a half years, then a cyber instructor, then a Russian affairs instructor over in England for two years, and now I'm back here. But a personal story of mine was when I, got, when I left the Army, for four years I was working at a shipping company up in Minnesota. And so four years of my life, I was dealing with the salt of the earth. And one of the things was, when you're dealing with owners of, of trucking companies, when you're dealing with truck drivers, you have to become a master of human psychology. Especially when you interact with them versus over the phone, when you interact with them in person, you have to bond with them, you have to build their trust, because if you don't, they won't deliver your freight and you lose your customers. And so what ended up happening was, I went over, came over here, and I ended up spending most of my days online, looking at the lives of others. And I noticed that after about two months of this work, of looking at social media, um, something that I, I didn't do beforehand, 
my personality started to change quite dramatically. Because I was seeing everybody else with their perfect wife, their perfect kids, their perfect house, their perfect vacation, their perfect job, their perfect travels. And I was looking at my own life and saying, well, there, there must be something wrong with, with my life. And I noticed the psychological stress that was going on. So I became very interested in this subject and found out, no, what, what I was dealing with was actually a normal phenomenon. And because I knew about this, and this was part of human psychology, I was able to then able, able to master my, my emotional responses. Uh, unfortunately, people don't take time to do that. So we're starting to see a lot of phenomena go on in this world where now we're being exposed to all these, these, these imagery, all this imagery, all this information, and it's altering our personality, and we don't understand what's happening to us. So the purpose of this presentation is actually to finish within one hour. I can go on, um, I've taught blocks of instruction that can go on for days, talking about how cyber, how you can influence people in a wired world of cyber intelligence. And we can look at all these different aspects of cyber intelligence and how to influence people. But what I'm going to present here is the macro human cyber landscape. How the world is in cyberspace. What are the key interpretations we can take away from the data that we see? What are observable mass responses? And this, we're talking about mass responses to human race. How are we responding to the fact that we're now in a wired world? Where future trends are going to, where we are going to see future trends? And then what are some steps you can take to um, master your interactions in the human cyber landscape? Rather than react to it, rather than have all these strange emotions, you're going to be able to understand, okay, this is what I'm dealing with, and this is how I can master it. To actually become a much more functional person in cyberspace. So this was the past. This was our interaction with information, with public information. We were consumers of information. The providers of the information were those who could master the technology delivery. They created our desires. They created our demands. So who was, in the past, who, who created our demands? It was newspapers, because they could command print media. It was governments, because they could put out, they could issue the license for what information is broadcast or printed. So we had the public service announcement. We had the public edu the education system. We had broadcast television. We had advertisers because they could pay money to the newspapers. They could pay money to uh, the radios. They could pay money to the televisions to, to tell us what our demands, what our desires should be. So we see this, uh, some of those who are old enough to remember this is a commercial from the 1970s. This is Joe Namath, um, who's a famous quarterback, if I remember that correctly. And what is he showing us? I use Brute uh, aftershave and shaving products, so should you. This is how things were done. It was a one-way flow of information. We were being told what we should desire, and our heroes were being used to convey that, because we wanted to be like our heroes. Well, what do we see now? We're now the masters of technology, and we are the, now the producers of information. The deciders, of, the deciders are the ones who can match the information that we're sending out. We are projecting our desires. We are projecting our demands. And now those who can match our demands, or those who can match our desires, are going to dominate. So this is where we see Google. This is where we see social media. This is where we see niche entertainment and news. How many people have watched uh, ABC, CBS, NBC News lately? Wow, rare. Um, but on YouTube. But on YouTube. <laughs> but, on, but, 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 but on YouTube, but you know what? Um, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, I think like 80% of Americans before the internet received their news from those three broadcasters. And I think 20% received it from cable, which was CNN, and, and Fox was just emerging at that time. Um, what is the most popular show right now on NBC Thursday night? Anybody know? 20 years ago, everybody would know. I think it was Seinfeld or Friends. Um, we now live in a very, everyone is now living in niche entertainment because our demands and desires are different. I'm not. What you're watching is not what I'm watching. I'm watching, let's say, French comedies. We also watching French comedies and through nobody. Okay, so now we, we are seeing ourselves in a multi-flow of information. And this is this is a picture, for example, of the influencer. You've all heard of those terms? Right? You know, this is where now advertisers see this is where I'm gonna get my product out by by using social media influencers. But it's a now there's no longer a one-way flow of information. 
now it's a multi-way, uh, multi-channel flow of information. So what what drives this? Who's heard of Rene Girard, the mimetic theory? Anyone? You don't have to. I mean, I didn't know about him until about six years ago. If you want to do it, this good-looking French guy, he actually died a few years ago, um, called Rene Girard, and he came up with this thing called the mimetic theory. And it actually explains nearly all of human, it's almost a grand unifying theory of human behavior. Because animals, they do things based off of instinct. According to Rene Girard, mimetic theory, and people have actually tested this, there's, there's now conferences, symposiums on his theory, mimetic theories, and the more they try to test it, the more it is provable. And it comes up to this real simple thing, and it goes back to why advertisement works well, is you and I um, desire the same thing. You know, for example, I'm drinking Coca-Cola. You admire me. Let's say I'm a sports, I'm a sports hero. You're an admired sports hero. I'm drinking Coca-Cola. You want to be like me. You copy me. Language is another way, for example, mimetic theory. But if we both desire the same thing, and we can't have there's tension between us, so let's say I have the car that you clearly can't have. I have, let's say, a nice Ferrari, and you don't have that. And you would like it because you want to be like me. Well, we have tension. So what, what this explains is why, why do we create religions? Because we have this tension, but rather than kill you, you know, go at it and go after each other, we create a scapegoat, put all our tension on scapegoat, and then there's now peace between us. And this actually explains why human beings create religions. And we can also see phenomenons in politics as well, why we scapegoat certain groups of people. Why we have elections after a certain amount of time. If one president, you know, the economy's not doing good after four years, we make him the scapegoat. And this explains what human behavior. It also explains in advertising what goes on. We have this tension, we want to copy our heroes, like <coughs> name it, and we buy the product. That's what advertisers understand. But what we have going on now, it was much more smoother back then. The flow of information was one way. Things were lots, uh, the, the passage of knowledge and technology was much slower, especially when we're, when we're exposing a lot of developing or emerging societies to new information, to new desires. What we're right now seeing with the internet and the whole world now becoming connected to the internet, we're seeing mimetic desires being accelerated and mimetic tensions increasing between people. So now we're going to see a lot of phenomena in the world that are going to be explained by the fact that people now are in a high state of psychological frustration. So this is how the world looks like now online. So there is a, if you want to know a great source, uh, it's called We Are Social. Um, and they put out a report every year on worldwide internet usage. It's, uh, and they actually will break it down by country. Um, they just came out with a recent report, and I was actually going through it last night. I wasted about three hours just reading all the changes that were going on. And um, what they do is they actually look at uh, how, people, how the world acts online. And what we see is this is the world population. Nearly two-thirds now of the world population has a mobile device. And 60% are now connected to the Internet. And by the way, now half the world population is on social media. So, and I looked at these. I looked at these reports since 2015. It's just amazing just to see how it just continues to rise year after year. And we're seeing basically now with half the world population um, are active social media users. It's growing by about nine percent. We will probably see within ten year, within seven years, every human being on the face of the earth will have some sort of social media presence, except for maybe the very old or the very young. But we've actually seen uh, general saturation now of internet usage. And this is why, for example, why do you think um, Facebook and Elon Musk, let me go right here, why do you think Facebook and Elon Musk are interested in tethering um, and putting internet access to all of Africa? So that's the last remaining, go ahead, sir. Grow the market. It's the last remaining market. We have now saturation, internet saturation, in all these, in, all, in most developed areas of the world. And what's happening is there's actually one company called One Globe, and for a billion dollars, they're going to shoot up about 900 satellites about the size of a basketball. It only costs a billion dollars, which will provide internet coverage to every place on the face of the earth. 
And what we're seeing now, this is how human beings, this is how the average human being, this is how <coughs> is 16 and 64. So this is the, the mark of it. Um, you know, keep, it, it takes out the, the very old and the very young. But they're using now the internet nearly, nearly seven hours a day. Very interesting, um, using TV quite a lot less. Remember how the average American used to watch eight hours of TV back in the 50s and 60s? We're not using that anymore. We're using it now to listen to streaming, uh, to use social media, to watch, watch TV, and to listen to streaming music, and to play games. It's amazing. This is every man, woman, and child between ages 16 and 64 on the face of this earth who has access to the internet. This is how much time they spend on the internet, and this is what they're doing. So this is where we see, for example, why, why the last remaining market is Africa right now. And we'll probably see within five years, every place in Africa will now have access to the internet. Now, we're going to see a lot of interesting phenomena because of that. Um, there was actually a story, if I remember the details right, in, late, in the late 2000s, like 2009, 2010. Um, a bunch of researchers brought to some villages in Ethiopia. Who's heard of this story? A bunch of laptop computers to, Ethiopian, uh, to several Ethiopian villages. And after a few months, they came back later and found that most of the kids were able to, uh, able to read and write with those laptops, computers, well, type and read. And they didn't have any schools in those villages. The way of self-learning has, has, has increased so much. And internet growth, and because Africa is such a virgin market, it's growing by about 40%. That's really the last frontier for the internet. So this is the time spent per, per day using the internet. Now, this is going to be really interesting because I don't know if you can see it so well, but I'm, here's some of the countries that use the internet the most. The Philippines, South Africa, Brazil, Colombia, Thailand, Argentina, Mexico, Indonesia, Malaysia. Those are the biggest users of the internet. What are the countries? So those are those countries, right? Countries that use it the least. Japan, Netherlands, Germany, Denmark, France, Belgium, South Korea. Why do you think it is? Why do you think less developed countries, or poor countries, use the internet more than more developed countries, or wealthier countries? More developed countries have a higher aging population. Okay, that's one possible. Go ahead, sir. A lot of things they want cannot be accessed any other way except the internet, using a, maybe a mobile phone like in Africa when you don't have a, a mobile computer. Okay. But we'll actually look at mobile devices because we see the similar way on mobile devices as well. Go ahead. Um, to say, I'm kind of quoting an econ professor here who did a lot of development work in very poor areas. But he said, there's bleeping nothing to do. Bingo. So the part of it is nothing to do, but also is the not nothing to do is actually a big a big factor in it, but also the exposure to other things to do. So give give you know I have kids, okay? So if I give my kids access to the internet. What are they going to do with that? Now, they'll have in their house, they'll have televisions, they'll have sports equipment, they'll have all these other things to do. You know, part of it is the level of maturity. Like, where do they get their pleasure points? So if you look at this, if at this area, if you're barely making any money and you're living in a very poor condition, this is really your only source of enjoyment in life. And then all, and what do you have in these countries? You have other sources of enjoyment. And that's the big fact, you know, that goes to that point. Now, what is the big problem, though, when we see kids on their devices too long? Imagine you're now doing this to a whole adult population. Do you think it's going to affect the psychology of those particular countries? Do you think it's going to affect their politics, who they vote for, what their aspirations are, how they interact with each other? I mean, there's all these impacts. You know, a kid, you know, one of, one of the issues we have with these, um, what do they got the problem with those mass shooters, those kids? You know, they're all in the Asperger autism spectrum, right? They can't bond with other people. We're having this whole phenomenon now, especially in these emerging cultures, in these emerging countries, where human bonds are being taken, where, where, where developing human bonds is being taken away from them because of this. So... Imagine now when you expect, okay, I'm going to go to this particular country, they should act a certain way, and they're not acting that certain way, because guess what they're doing most of the time? This is their only social interaction, or they don't even have it. 
Um, going back to your point, who said uh, something about having access to getting more? Yes, uh, Steve. Yeah, going back to. Um, so you, you think they don't have a laptop computer, but they're actually spending most of their time also on their mobile devices. So not only are they spending a lot of time, but they, you know it's through their mobile devices. Again, Philippines, Thailand, Nigeria, Colombia, Indonesia, Brazil, Kenya. Look at Japan, one and a half hours on their mobile devices. So if who's been in Japan, right? Or if you've seen pictures of Japan, what are what is it most people doing on their commutes? They're on their little thing. They're not actually communicating with anybody, they're just playing games. And what's very interesting, if you look at countries, I like to, I like to look at this one because if you look at Germany, Belgium, Denmark, France, and the Netherlands, also spend about two, two hours on average on mobile devices. What does it tell about that culture? You know what, if you go to France, you go to Belgium, you go to those countries, you pull out your mobile device, that's considered very rude. These cultures, these cultures have different values, and it's interesting because I looked at, I looked at it, I looked at the figures from a few years ago because I, I do this briefing almost every year when I was a cyber instructor, and I was looking at France, and a few years ago they were only spending one hour, one hour on their mobile devices. Now people are spending more time on their mobile devices because, guess what? They have to use Uber, they have to use Facebook to make their hotel, their hotel reservations or their restaurant reservations. So. They're being forced to use more social media, not because they want to, but just because now things are done through social media. So um, I'm going to go through this. Basically, what, what we see right now is the big takeaway is emerging cultures are getting exposed to social media, but just like a, a young child, once you expose them to that, that source of pleasure, that in a sense becomes an addiction. So now you're going to see their psychology is going to be shaped by their heavy interaction on social media. And a few things to look at. So we see developed countries are very, um, are, you know, a large part of the population does use social media. Eastern Europe a little bit less. Why, why does Russia, for example, if you look at Russia, I think, um, if you look back here, Russia is less on social media, less uh, uses their mobile devices and less social media than other countries. Why is that? They're just their their internet their internet infrastructure is less developed. You know, a country that's three times the size of the United States, people don't have regular access to good mobile uh, you know mobile internet connection. You know, small towns and villages out there don't have regular connection to the internet. So it tells you that if you're trying to do an information campaign through the internet, you're going to have less effect in a country like Russia. Mainly not because of government oppression, but just because of the physical infrastructure of that country. Um, but very interesting, I look at this, look at Central Asia, only about 22% of the population is on social media. That's pretty low for, you know, look at Kazakhstan, look at Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan with all their gas and oil, are fairly wealthy countries. Why do you think a, a small percentage of the adults in those, in those countries use social media? Think of their legacies. Oppressive Soviet regimes, followed by oppressive post-Soviet regimes where people disappear, you better be careful about, about putting yourself online too much. And so this shows a level of lack of trust on being online. One of the other things is um, going, um, I'll, I'll give a shout out, but Yevgeny gave me a really good, uh, Yevgeny Bechner gave me a really good video to watch yesterday about the Telegraph. And one of the recommendations is talking about Russian disinformation campaigns, which they've used since the Cold War, since the Soviet period. And one of the recommendations was is to, for Facebook to demand account verification of users, you know, to make sure that that's an actual real human being behind that. But what would be a problem of that if you, you demanded that social media uh, identify who, who the real human being behind the social media account is? Go ahead, Steve. The uh, government. Uh, Using sort of payments in the area can identify who it is as well and follow them even more accurately. Yes. You know, in China, only about 38% of the population on their social media uses their real names. That's an interesting statistic showing, again, how much trust is there in society? How, how do they, you know, do they trust the government or not? And 
the big thing though is right now, what's, what has gone on in Central Asia? Who follows Central Asia right now? Politics in Central Asia. There's a large degree of liberalization that's gone on in the past few years. So as a result, social media usage is now growing quite rapidly in Central Asia. Okay, uh, social media uh, penetration. Again, it's pretty clear that countries that don't have regular access to the internet have less social media presence. So again, you're looking at, um, and I'm looking at Russia, for example. Russia is towards the bottom here, a population that's on social media. Again, it's a reflection of how much access do they have to the internet. Again, so, and then this is, again, more disturbing. The, the poorer the country, the more time they actually, the, the more time they spend on the internet. And by the way, those who have access to the internet tend to be higher earners, right? Be able to pay for pay for your internet service. Yet in, the, in these poorer countries, they're spending a large part of their time, most of their time, and their in, um, and their income on just being hooked to the internet. Now, what do you think this does for productivity? You think there's an inverse relationship between how much time the Jer South Koreans, the Japanese, the Swiss, the Dutch, and the Germans and Austrians spend on, on social media versus these countries? You wonder why those countries are are much more economically dynamic. So what do you think some other implications are? So this goes up to all of you. What do you think some of the implications are now that everyone is on social media, especially uh, poorer countries? Go ahead, sir. We're going to see large shifts in their politics and culture. Yes. Do you have any ideas which ones? Which uh, yeah, what possible shifts could come about? Well, to be pessimistic about it, Strong, strong problems with their ability to see truth or find truth in information, just judging by what's what happening here. Yes, sir. I'm sort of wondering about this because we've seen it in elections so far, but I'm wondering if there might be, in certain even more poorly regulated environments, corporations might use this info to outright sabotage their rivals in other corporations. Yes, like like Nestle puts sterilants in their in their in their in their baby formula, right? Right. right. Yeah. Something like yeah. Yeah, something like that. So you know, if I'm if Nestle's my competitor for a baby formula, mm -hmm. I can put up this information campaign. Um, so we're gonna these are these are just some of the big pathologies that I'm going to show you. Okay, first of all, the biggest one is the global fertility crash. All right, and it's very interesting. Who's heard about Brazil in the 1970s when they introduced televisions to Brazil? So in the 1970s, they had a, a fairly conservative military dictatorship in Brazil that wanted to increase the birth rate, wanted to increase Brazil's population. And so they restricted contraception to, to married couples. Um, and yet birth rates fell dramatically in Brazil. Because all of a sudden, the whole society got television. And all poor people saw, oh my gosh, this is how other people live like. And their birth rate went down. It was very interesting that in, and now we see in the world, especially in Latin America, in the United States, and in Europe, the poorer you are, the fewer children you have. You know, people who have lots of kids are ones that are you know generally upper class or you know upper generally upper classes. And we're seeing this happen so fast. And right now, you know that Iran, you know what their birth rate is? It's 1.4, 1.4 per kid, 1.4 child per woman. Uh, lower than Germany. I think Africa, South Africa is now below, it's like 1.8. So we're seeing this phenomenon because people are being exposed to different, a different way of life. And they said, you know what? This is more enjoyable. I want to actually have this way of life, and having eight kids is not the way to do it. And it's impacting especially the developing countries. So you've heard of this term called middle income trap, where countries have to get rich before they get old. Well, now a lot of countries are going to be trapped in that middle income trap. We're now a poor country that actually have very low birth rates. And if you go to this Bloomberg article, it came out just, I think, two months ago. It actually will show, you can click each country, and it'll show how the birth rates have collapsed. Several other pathologies, what we see here. Um, you know, the key, this is something that I experienced when I was spending, when my work required me to spend a lot of time on social media. A form of depression set in. You know, the key to happiness is not to compare yourself to others, but you've heard all the studies. People who spend a lot of time on social media have more depression, right? Well, can you imagine in these poorer countries, 
the mental illness that's now going to ravage these societies. Um, who's heard of porn-induced erectile dysfunction? Anybody heard of this? The biggest buyer, you know who the biggest purchasers of Viagra are? You know what age group? Men in their 20s. Do you wonder why James Bond or Mad Men were able to seduce all these women? Because they didn't have they didn't have uh, these, these adult content websites available. And by the way, if you, uh, we are social will actually rank the most popular websites. And it's very interesting that adult contents are towards the top of the list. Um, so we go from the Mad Men, James Bond versus the Viagra generation, which we've entered into. And by the way, this is a phenomenon that's inf infecting the whole world. And it's very interesting because we're, you know, aside from India, where you hear these horrible stories, um, sexual violence is actually declining because of this. Because men have now other outlets. You know, what was the big concern in China with you know the 100 million uh, women missing, and there's a big concern about the social cohesion because a lot of young men would not have women. Well, guess what they're doing now? They've taken themselves out of the market. Who here is in the who, which guy is in the dating scene? You know, a lot of them are, are you know a lot of them are saying it's it's like you know it's shooting fish in a barrel because 25% of the men in the world have taken themselves out of the dating market because of that. So, who's her, do you know what uh, um, what autism is? Can anyone like basically define what autism is? Aside from some of us have it, no, I'm just kidding. Um, autism is basically your there's the, the the empathetic portion of your brain isn't working properly. So, for example, if I walk here and I trip over this chair, if you have proper if your if your empathy sector of your brain is working properly, you'll feel that. Because that, and then you'll learn from that. It says, okay, I'll be careful when I walk around by that chair so I don't trip like he did. Well, what's happening now is we're seeing this phenomenon where we're, dull, we're dulling our sense of empathy. Because now we're only dealing with two-dimensional interaction with other human beings versus three-dimensional. Um, and the withering of shame. We live now in an e-panopticon. You know what the panop what is it, the panopticon was? It was this model prison where the prison guards could see every prisoner. And we are seeing this now. So you wonder why, for example, you know, stuff that we wouldn't have tolerated 20 years ago, we tolerate now because I said, well, if you know everything I do online, you know my entire browsing history, you know who I am, then I'm not going to be embarrassed by it anymore. So, um, see about dating, birth rate decline. One big issue is decline in productivity. Why do you think, you know, one of the interesting phenomena we had in the past 10 years with the economic recovery, people's wages have stagnated? Do you know what most uh, companies are saying? Do you know why they haven't been able to raise the pay for their workers? They said productivity has gone down because people are now spending more time on social media, more time doing other things than work, that as a result, productivity at enterprises are going down. But one of the big things, so you've all heard about the Arab Spring being the Twitter or the Facebook revolution, because it was spread by Twitter and Facebook. Reality was it was a it was a Twitter and Facebook revolution, but not the way you think it, because in about 2000, late 2000s, the entire Islamic world was exposed to the, was exposed to the outside world through their through their through their Android devices. What is a phenomenon we have when, college, when high school students leave their, high, their hometown and go to college? About 25% of them basically have like a nervous breakdown, have a lot of psycho, you know, psychological problems when they go to college because they're exposed to a whole new world. We had this to an entire society for 1,400 years, had this way to view the world, had this way to live, and all of a sudden are exposed to a different way to live. They basically went through, the entire Islamic world, or the Arab world, went through a, a nervous breakdown. That's what happened. There was all these frustrations where people were living like this, living in these mud huts, married to their first cousins for 1,400 years, all of a sudden being exposed to Facebook, Twitter, Kim Kardashian, everything you can imagine, their whole worldview was shattered. So I'm not going to, uh, for time's sake, I'm not going to talk too much, but in a sense we are in the seventh generation of warfare, which is psychological warfare. And this is why you mastering how human psychology works in cyberspace is going to make you much more effective. And I won't go into the previous generations of war, because I said, um, but one of them is, how do you manipulate people's psychology online? What's the most effective way? Yes, sir. 
Okay. What? Who knows the three? What are the aspects of communication? Does anyone know about this? Logos, pathos, and ethos, whichever one is that, which is critical. Okay. Now, there's three parts. When I'm speaking to you, um, what percentage of the communication I use is the words I'm saying? 10%. Yeah, about 10%. What are the other two, two what are the other factors? Body range. Yeah, how much is that? 70%. Yeah. And what's the other one? Tone of voice. Yeah, it's about 30%. Now, I actually did a lot of reading on that. There's, on the, on those studies, not exactly like this, but it's actually really important because guess what's happening when you're online? Where's all the communication coming from? The image is being presented. That is the body language that you see. Now, you may not know. You may think that you're talking with this girl or you may be talking with this guy who's telling you this one thing, but you're more focused on the image, completely ignoring the fact that it's somebody else behind there. Behind there. So, for example, you can tell, actually, if you're good at this, you can tell whether the person is a native speaker, whether the person is a male or female, what age group they belong to. You can tell them what uh, ethnicity they're part of. All based off, their, off of their words, but we're ignoring the words that they're using. And we're all focused on the image. So this is how we end up, this is how we can be manipulated. Or if you want to use it the other way around, using images is very important in manipulating your target audience because that becomes 70% of the communication. They're completely ignoring the words that you're saying. So, for advanced societies, <clears throat> who's heard of the term called uh, the pendulum theory? It was actually a book that I read. It was written by two, two people who work in advertising. And they basically said, look, you see in Western society, or actually in European society, you know, American European society, you see a pendulum that runs about every 80 years, where we go from peak individualism, a peak me generation, to a peak we. And by the way, in Asia it's inverse. So right now we, so, so basically in the 1980s we were in the peak me generation. We're now entering into the peak we generation. In Asia it's the other way around. Right now in China, Korea, Japan, they're now being very, they're becoming very individualistic. So they're saying, if you want to be successful in advertising in, in Asia, just use the advertising model, you just copy the advertising from the 1980s in America, and, that's, and that will be successful in Asia. And I'll show you two examples of how this works. So this is a commercial from the Army in 1983. What do you, what's the emphasis in that commercial? The individual, right? This is actually a, a commercial that came out uh, a couple years ago.
quite different from the commercial in 1983, right? What do you see here? A team. What else do you see? Something letting you do something rather than you mastering something. Yes. Danger. Sandstorm. Rough seas. The world is a dangerous place. You have to be part of a team. And this is how, this is the world that Western Europe, or you know, Europe and the United States are entering into. We're entering into a period of peak polarization. Um, and there was a politician who successfully um, mastered that back in 2016. And he now sits in the White House. I mean, let's, I'm not going to go into, you know, politics, but if you actually look at his campaign, he was able to rally his side. It wasn't so much that he convinced people to vote for him, he convinced his supporters to vote for him. The other side did not. So what do we see some other phenomena with this we in the West? Aside from Google, what is the most popular search engine in, uh, in the United States? Or search platform? It'll surprise you. Genealogy. That's what people are interested in. There's a search for authenticity. Because when you're part of the team, what do you want to do? You want to prove that you're a real person, that you belong to that team. You want to prove your authenticity. Explains the obsession about genealogy. And by the way, look at, look at the way people dress and sport their beards. They're almost as conformist as they are in the 19th, last time when we, were in a, when we were in a wee cycle was in the 1940s and 50s. What, what did we see? Everybody all looked alike. What do we see now? Surprisingly, a lot of people just look alike. Because of the way they dress, the way they sport their beer, they drink their authentic craft beer, the search for authenticity. Conformity is extremely important. Why do you have tattoos? Because, guess what, the whole group is having tattoos and I better do the same thing. This, it's really amazing. I said, we are, we are now back in this recycle of the 1940s and 1950s. But what do you see for emerging societies, less developed societies? Now, this is going on to the psychological phenomena that we're seeing now. You know, one of the things about being on social media is you become more isolated, right? So we see in, in the developed society, we see polarization, the formation of teams. In emerging societies, we see isolation. And what do you see when you're isolated? You search for a savior. And this is why we see the, the phenomenon in the world of the rise of political strongmen. Because a large group of people, and this is including the United States, feel isolated. How do you think the rise of Erdogan happens, or Duterte in the Philippines, or, or, or you know, all, all throughout you know, Europe, we will see the rise of certain strongmen. And we see this especially in the Islamic world. What are they all looking for right now? The Mahdi, the Caliph. That, that becomes now the, the obsession. Because of this phenomenon of isolation, and it's being reinforced by the fact that people are now isolating themselves physically by going onto social media. So with this, here's a call to action for all of us. Make sure we're doing good on time. So how do you master this? Well, one is create your online profile. What is, it, what is the big issue about if, if, if human contact is a commodity, if you put yourself out too much, will people value you more or less? What about people who don't have any social, social media presence? They're pretty popular because they're keeping themselves very rare. Um, and one of the things that you can think, you, you know, this is just a little side note, but you can think to yourself, okay, I'll be online, but I won't use my real name. Like, for example, I, I, my Facebook, I don't use my real name. I won't use my real name. Uh, I'll try to be somebody else. But guess what happens with browsers? The way, you, the way you act online, they said they only need 21 data points to find out who that it's exactly you. Very, very interesting. It's, it's what they call digital fingerprinting. So I could be in another country, and if I behave even with a fake name, and I behave a way that they will be able to find out within 21 data points that it's Peter Devins. My browser will be able to find that. So one of them is if you want to master, you know, you have to understand the world that everybody's out there isolating themselves. What do you do? You do the opposite. You engage with people. How, who's tried to organize an event online? Who's tried to organize an event? And where people are doing text messages, group text messages, and confusion happens, when you could have solved it by making a simple phone call. 
And I'll who's heard of the Dunbar number? Anybody heard of this term called the Dunbar number? <coughs> it's actually the amount of social, the actual amount of meaningful relationships a human being can actually have. And what do most people do, especially now online? They're trying to be at this range right here. They're trying to have 1,500 Facebook friends. But I said, if you want to be more effective in this world, focus on this. Focus on your closest inner circle. And then let them focus on their closest inner circle if you actually want to influence, if you want to influence people. Trying to find 1,500 Facebook friends or 1,500 Twitter followers is not going to help you. <coughs> the Dunbar numbers actually comes out from uh, a person who looked at a study and said basically the most amount of the most amount of relationships a human being can have is 150. And this possibly comes from the time when we were hunter-gatherers that, if, that a tribe could only be 150. If it got any bigger, it would have to split apart. And they notice this phenomenon also in businesses, that when a company grows above 150, the, um, the, the relationships and the control of the company weaken. You know, the founder, for example, he has less control of the company when he gets above 150 employees. Because amount of, you can, a human being can only have 150 meaningful relations. Why do army companies, infantry companies, only have 150 soldiers or 140 soldiers? because a company commander can only have that many meaningful relationships. So the big thing is, the big call to action is stay away from this. If you have, I do this myself, like LinkedIn, keep myself to, I try to keep, I'm about 200 contacts, but I go through it about every six months and it says, does this person I know or I have any contact with? I just delete them, unfriend them. Keep it down. If I want to be more effective, if I'm wasting all my time in this area, I can't build any meaningful relationships, ones that are going to make me more effective in this world or make me a better person. So this goes to the challenge of the 21st century. Um, and this actually was taught to me by a French guy, but there's a term, it's a challenge of the 21st century is existence or versus non-existence. Are we dealing with a two-dimensional person or are we dealing with a real human being? Well, I think it applies to the defense world right now. Um, so what are you trying to do? So you're, you're trying to, let's say we're trying to do an information operation in the Middle East. Would that be the case? Sure. Okay. I would spend my time bringing in people from the Department of Defense and saying, our Twitter campaign in the Middle East is, is, is not effective. What we should be doing is train a bunch of people Go out there and engage with key leaders who are involved in the community, people who have good personal relationships, you know, let's say imams, business leaders, and engage them. I say if you want to transform that society, if you want to influence that society, build a bond, a physical bond with that person. I mean, that's, that's, if you look at human history, society's got transformed over 300 years. You know, we, we go into Afghanistan and assume that they're going to be uh, liberal Jeffersonian Democrats after five years and a few elections. They said, no. You know, if you look at the Roman Empire, it took 300 years to transform from this barbaric, you know, gladiators to somewhat, to a society that suddenly said, you know, people are endowed with certain rights. 300 years. But you're not going to do that by figuring if I flood them with Twitter, that's going to be effective. What other, what, other, what other areas do you think that, that we could look at? I mean, also we would look at, the, you know, one of the things is, there, there's, it's a little bit controversial, but there's this, there's this guy called Michael Vlahos, and I listened to him about six years ago. He was trying to explain U.S., they, they were interviewing him and explaining U.S. policy in the Middle East. And we, actually the Obama administration was onto something in that, we realized that the Middle East, especially this was in the wake of the Arab Spring, was looking for a caliph, was looking for, you know, looking for their a messiah, a Mahdi, and that we should accommodate that. You know, it's a little bit controversial to say, but if you actually look at the psychology of the people, saying, what do they, what do they seek, what do they want? They want a messiah. What are their ones? More of a leadership question, um, but uh, what is it that makes a relationship with your top 100 people meaningful? 
dynamic words, that because they're shifting in terms of persistence, right? So that's not it. Um, yeah. I'm curious what it means in an organizational leadership. Well it, basically, well, it basically means that if you get above 150 people, you're going to start to lose control. There's nothing you can do beyond it. So um, what can I do? So for example, if I have, if I reduce my LinkedIn profile to just 150 people, these are people that I can send out a message to and a good percentage would be able to respond. I mean, would these be people that, if I send out a message to 150 of my LinkedIn uh, contacts, I could expect 30 or 20 20 to 30 to actually respond to a message. That's that's a, that that shows that that how much they value me. So in a way, are you saying that uh, there are severe limits to the power of social media, say in the context of the Middle East? Because it seemed like really what you're saying is do it the old-fashioned way, and that all the Twitter campaigns and everything of the Arab Spring has a very fleeting. Okay, so what I'm showing is this is the world now. This is now the landscape we live in. This is sort of like now. This is a new. We're in a new climate, okay, of human interaction, of human psychology. But to be very effective, if you want to trans, if you want to make impact in the Middle East, again, look at what close physical ties you can establish. And we're talking more on a leadership perspective. You know, we waste massive amounts of resources on State Department Twitter campaigns or Facebook campaigns. You know, we pay a bunch of people in India to post a bunch of stuff on Twitter. How effective is that going to be in transforming society? When you can look at, you know, if we do some exchange programs, especially with key people who are key decision makers, interactions, that's going to help us out a lot more. But we also have to look at the fact that, we're, you know, we're, that humans now are going, to, are, not, are going to commit to things. You know, let's look at Rent-A-Mob, right? How do you think that they're able to get these massive mobs to show up to embassies? You post out on Facebook and Twitter and says free free rice and beans for everybody. It shows up. I mean, there's ways you can use it. I mean, there's ways that you can use this, this mass effect, but you're going to realize the level of commitment is going to be less. It's going to be more transactional. I want 150 people. I want a mass crowd of people to you know. Pre Vice President Pence is going to visit uh, this this city. I want big crowds to greet him in the streets. I'll send out a Twitter campaign or Facebook campaign and, and offer them what they want. Offer them free coupons or, you know, food or, or some sort of benefit they, that they can get for showing up. And by the way, I can send it out to a million people and only maybe 10,000 will show up. As we're finding out with people who put out, you know, people will have 15,000 or 20,000 followers on Facebook and they'll say, hey, I want to have a party at, my, at this park and nobody shows up. There's a rather sad story that this girl in Russia she had like 20,000 friends on Facebook who followed her, and she said, let's go meet at the park for a, for a party, and nobody showed up. Yes? What vulnerabilities do you anticipate here with this new silo, polarized environment that's created in the US? Oh, um, well, if we, look at, if we look at the previous iterations, it's not good. You know, we'll basically have this, this great this, this, this conflict that will emerge, and then the society becomes conformist after this great conflict. You know, you look at the 1940s and 50s, America, after World War II, was a conformist society. Same with Europe. Everybody, would, you know, all, all, actually all throughout the world, especially with the Soviet Union, they were very conformist. So you have this great conflict that emerges. The prognosis is not good. I mean, I don't see how we, we lucked out in the 1930s I mean, America was in a really precarious place, but what ended up happening was the Republican parties were so, were, was so severely defeated in the elections, they couldn't provide an alternative challenge to Roosevelt. And then, we are, and then when people got tired of Roosevelt, he was lucky that the war happened and it rallied people around him. But no, there's, there's, there's nothing you can stop. It's just we're, we're going into this we cycle, and then once you know, this conflict happens, then we become conformists for about, a, about 15, 20 years. Who's read the book The Fourth Turning? Who's heard of it? Okay, it came out in the late 1990s. It was actually a bestseller. But it talked about this. I actually read it a few years ago and it almost described to a T President Bush, President Obama, and President Trump, the type of leaders we have. And this was written in 1997. 
was the title again? The fourth turning. Okay. Thank you very much.